This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Agriculture Department has a new initiative to conduct surveillance. It wants to catch potential COVID-19 and other zoonotically originating diseases by keeping on top of animals susceptible to them. It's working on what officials call a strategic framework for an early development warning system. Here with more, the Associate Administrator for USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, Dr. Michael Watson. Dr. Watson, good to have you on. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to share the work that we're doing. All right, so a strategic framework for an early warning system. Tell us exactly what you're looking at here. So the COVID-19 global pandemic has highlighted the risk of emerging in zoonotic diseases around the world. I think everybody's aware of the challenges we're facing, and scientists estimate that three out of every four new or emerging infectious diseases in people come from animals. And so our goal with this project is to conduct thorough surveillance of SARS-CoV-2 and susceptible animals by building an early warning system that will allow us to alert public health partners to take steps sooner to potentially prevent or limit the next zoonotic disease outbreak or the next global pandemic. And so that's our overall goal is to you know, work with our public health partners and hopefully avoid another situation such as the SARS-CoV-2 has created around the world here. So is this basically a way of people that have animals, say, that are inspected normally like farms, to have a reporting system that would then gather up all of the information? Is that what you mean by surveillance? So the surveillance is going to be actually pretty broad scope. So we're going to start as wide as possible. And you know, we haven't actually defined the specific effort. The framework gives an overall view, and now we're working on the details on how we're going to go about doing that. But you know, we want to start off with every possible animal species to see if they are susceptible to SARS-CoV-2. And as we're able to eliminate those ones that are not, we'll be able to focus on those that are. So it's captive species, it's pets, it's you know, wild animals as well. So we want to make sure we're doing as broad a scope as possible to ensure that whenever there's a possibility of a human-animal interaction, we have some sense of whether or not there's potential for SARS-CoV-2 transmission, either from humans to animals or vice versa. And what animals do we know are susceptible to this type of disease? Is it all of them or certain birds and what? So we don't know for sure yet, and that's a big part of our work that we're going to be doing here. You know, we have had reports and we have some data around mink, you know, that have been susceptible. We've had some data on animals such as lions and, you know, the big cats. We have some recent data that show that deer have the antibodies to the virus. And so we're not really sure yet whether the deer are susceptible or just have been exposed, but we do know that deer carry the antibodies based upon the studies we've done so far. So, you know, we do know there's a number of animals that at the very least have been exposed and show indications of being exposed. And that's why the biggest goal of this project is to figure out what that scope is, you know, again, starting as broad as possible and just get an idea of which species are susceptible. You know, obviously this is going to take a little bit of time, you know, because we have to develop the, the ability to test these animals and ensure we have availability to those animals. But the goal is to identify that scope and, again, narrow down which ones are actually susceptible, and then we'll go from there in terms of what those impacts are, what those species that are susceptible. We are speaking with Dr. Michael Watson, the Associate Administrator for USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service. And I'm guessing that at some point going to have to enlist other federal agencies, the ones that look at places like deer and lions and mink and so forth, because the uh, APHIS doesn't inspect anything beyond farm animals, if I have this correct. Actually, APHIS has already provided crucial support for SARS-CoV-2 testing in animals during the COVID-19 pandemic, and I mentioned before, confirming infections in mink as well as many other species. And so our wildlife services unit actually does do testing in wildlife species. 
so that that's part of their mission. And our veterinary services unit does the work with, with captive species. And so it is our mission to test wild and captive species. But as you mentioned, it does require a broader scope of work across the federal government and our partners. So what we want to utilize is a One Health approach. And a One Health approach embraces the idea that the complex problems that affect health of humans, animals, and the environment are best solved through improved communication, cooperation, and collaboration across disciplines and sectors. And so we look to partner with those agencies working to protect animal health, public health, and environmental health, including wildlife. And this will include, at the federal level, CDC, Department of Interior, FDA, and other partners. This also includes work with the tribal nations. At the state level, in addition to animal health partners, we look at state wildlife and public health agencies as well. So it's kind of an all-encompassing view. So it's the public health part, animal health, and wildlife health as well. So it's all three components there that we're looking at. And in developing the framework, then, that will lead to an operational plan for the surveillance to actually begin? Correct. So on August 24th, we released to the public our strategic framework, and this gives an overall view of what we want to accomplish. And we've asked for the public, our stakeholders, to give us comments. The comment period's open until October 8th. Regulations.gov is where you can go to make comments. We want to make sure that we're covering this broad scope that we need to to ensure we have a good feel for which animals are susceptible. And, you know, we've given some ideas on some of the initial work that we'll do. But as you mentioned, the goal will be for us to identify specific operational goals to address this issue in the various animal species that we're talking about. So the framework is broad in general, and we anticipate that this project is not a one- or two-year project. This is going to be a multi-year project. And as we go through these years, we will continue to develop those operational plans to start broadly, narrow it down, identify those species that are susceptible, and then figure out what that means, you know, how they become susceptible, what it means once the animal is infected or exposed, can an animal transmit to other animals, can an animal transmit to humans, and can humans transmit to that animal. So again, it's a multi-pronged, multi-year effort, but again, the goal is to identify where that risk is in terms of the animal population so that we can in the future hope to prevent any transmission of SARS-CoV-2, any of the variants from SARS-CoV-2. And eventually, hopefully, this early warning system helps us with other zoonotic diseases in the future, again, to help prevent those future pandemics. And in your mind, do you imagine at some point a type of visualization, a map showing species and instances of COVID that people could look up and kind of understand the trends in that way? Absolutely. We believe that one of the most critical parts of this work, and it's in the framework, is the collaboration and communication part, right? So we want to make sure that the public, our public health partners, the agencies that support this work are well aware of what those potential uh, risks are. I'm using risk for lack of a better word, but, you know, which animals present that risk so that we do the proper monitoring, we do the proper surveillance to ensure that we can, again, prevent that transmission from uh, those animals to humans. So, yes, absolutely. Um, communication collaboration is a, a hugely critical part of this work. And by the way, do we know anything at this point about the susceptibility of other primates, apes and gorillas and orangutans and monkeys to COVID? Uh, yes, we have had some detections in zoos. I think there's been some media reports around that. So we do know that there has been, again, detection. But what that means, again, we're not really sure. Does that mean that the animal becomes infected and has some significant risk from the virus, or does that mean that the animal is exposed and creates antibodies to the virus? And so 
that's part of this work as well. So first identifying which animals show positives for exposure, and then, you know, again, going in to see, does that mean the animal is infected? If it's infected, are there severe impacts, or does the animal recover quickly? You know, those kind of things. We want to make sure that we're able to have a really good feel to be able to tell the story about each animal species, what the susceptibility is, and what the potential risk is for that species. And I'm also curious to know that in, say, deer, which are eaten in some cases, or in just farm animals, you know, livestock, does the presence of that COVID or the antibodies affect that particular animal's or species' ability to become food? In other words, can you eat a cow that might be infected once it's slaughtered and cooked? There's two questions there, actually. So one question is, are the workers who work with these infected animals at a higher risk of being infected by you know, working with animals that have the virus, right? So that's one thing we have to take in consideration and make sure that if we do have infected animals that our partners, our One Health workers are protected from potential exposure to these animals. And then again, your second question is, is there potential for that transmission from those infected animals to humans through the food supply? And, and again, that goes into that, that issue of animals that show positive for SARS-CoV-2. What does that mean? Does it mean they've been exposed? Does it mean they've been infected? And if they're infected, as you mentioned, are they able to transmit that disease to humans? either through the food supply or other means kind of thing. So that's, that's a huge part of this as well, to make sure that we have a good feel for what that potential transmission is from, from the animals to humans. So in the meantime, make sure those burgers are well done. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, exactly. I, I think that's really important. I, mean, I hate to say we don't know enough yet to be able to answer the questions confidently that there is no risk. But, you know, again, we hope that we're able to get to that point sometime in the near future so that we can make sure the American public knows what these risks are. Dr. Michael Watson is Associate Administrator for USDA's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity. We'll post this interview along with a link to the framework at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm 
I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, What I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with 
uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. T- can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.